What does apocalyptic literature reveal? Anathea Portia-Young is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Duke Divinity School. In this conversation about her book entitled Apocalypse Against Empire, Theologies of Resistance in Early Judaism, Anathea explains what apocalyptic literature is and why it's a valuable resource for theological imagination. Anathea is interviewed by Sherry Osteen. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Anathea, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Sherry. Thank you. So we are talking about something that I think is really fun. We are talking about apocalypse and apocalyptic literature. So can you start us off by just talking a little bit about that genre in general? Wonderful. So when we hear apocalypse, I think the first thing we all think about is disaster movies. Mm -hmm. And we think about some great cataclysm that shreds the world apart and leaves us on the other side of it with, uh, you know, very little clothing or electricity. (laughs) Um, So we want to reframe this as we travel back in time to the Old Testament world and recognize that in its beginnings, apocalypse is a literary genre. And it's a literary genre that we first see in ancient Judaism. So when we are uh, historically looking at Judaism in the 3rd century BCE, the 2nd century BCE, this is when we begin to see the first examples of this literary genre. And we don't see the word apocalypse used as any kind of genre label or identifier until we get to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. So in that book is where we first see that word being used. It comes from the Greek word apokalupsis, which means something like an unveiling. And I want us to keep that idea of unveiling in mind. Uh, What does it mean to pull back a veil so that we can see something that would otherwise be invisible. That might be a hidden reality, a hidden realm, like the heavenly realm. It could be pulling back the veil to show us something on this terrestrial plane that we didn't see before, that we didn't realize was happening kind of behind the scenes. It could be pulling back the veil to to show us the truth behind the forms that we see. Maybe the truth about this institution, this government, this set of practices. Maybe we're not perceiving it exactly for what it is. And so the apocalypse as a genre sought to show, it sought to pull that veil away and reveal to its audiences this is the way the world actually is, despite appearances. These are the things that are happening behind the scene, and even these are things that are going to happen. So as a literary genre, there there are two major components that we see in uh, these early apocalypses, and we talk about it in terms of the, the literary forms. You tend to see a narrative framework and, uh, and that sets the stage in some kind of historical moment, often a fictional historical moment. We're going to come back to that, drawn from history but fictionalized, uh, and we'll come back to ask why would they have done that. So a narrative frame that introduces the visionary, 
and maybe some other characters into the picture, and then their visions. What is being revealed to them? And sometimes that takes on an almost poetic cast. We tend to see in, in those vision reports unusual imagery. One of the distinguishing features of an apocalypse uh, is often uh, referred to as the bizarre imagery, right? <laughs> so you have uh, horns coming out of this beast and this horn has eyes on it and the horn is talking or here's a a serpent and the serpent's attacking the woman and it's like really friendly for our artists very right? very yeah. inspiring for artists throughout yeah. the centuries yeah. um, so that use of imagery and we we want to be thinking how how does that imagery function if what we're trying to do is show people what is really happening in reality mm -hmm. so a lot of that unusual imagery is trying to kind of break the audience out of a more conventional way of seeing and thinking and being and get them to see things in new ways and get them to uh, begin to imagine new possible realities. Yeah. So, so I'm curious if you can give us one example. Um, and I'm especially curious if there's an example that, that piqued your interest in pursuing this in a scholarly way that you thought, man, I could spend years researching this particular story. So the the example that uh, so I'm an Old Testament scholar. The example from the Old Testament that uh, most of our listeners will be familiar with is the Book of Daniel, and uh, and I think that the the imagery in that book combines with these very familiar, cherished stories that are familiar to many people. So for me, as a child. I remember reading the stories of Daniel in the lion's den or Daniel's friends. And here are these heroes of the faith who dared to become martyrs. They didn't actually become martyrs in these stories, but they were willing to martyr themselves for their faith. For me, I was raised in the justice and peace movement. So my, my parents were, were peace activists and that example of nonviolent witness was really a powerful, a powerful kind of living testament to me of what it could mean to stand up for one's faith with one's life, with one's body. So I think that's a big part of what drew me in to uh, to that particular apocalypse, and from there, this whole landscape opened yeah. up. Yeah, and so you've you've probably found parallel stories outside of the biblical canon, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? What else is out there that helps us understand this genre in a more holistic way? Yeah, absolutely. So the book of Daniel, if if we were to locate that within its historical context, one of the things we find is that even though we have this example of an apocalypse in the Old Testament, it's not the only example from its time period. And there is a book that has been preserved in Ethiopian Orthodox Bibles and, uh, and in a, a long manuscript tradition uh, leading up to that, uh, that modern day biblical text called First Enoch. So, uh, so First Enoch, uh, we know to be an early Jewish writing, maybe a collection of texts around the figure of Enoch that we know from the book of Genesis. 
So if you have any familiarity just before the flood story, we hear about very briefly about this this person named Enoch who is righteous and he walks with God and then he was no more. He was no more. That very elliptical, mysterious language sparked the imagination of many, uh, many believers and thinkers in the ancient world. And where it says in, uh, in that Genesis text that he walked with God, the Hebrew Elohim can have another meaning. Uh, it can also be a plural form. He walked with gods. And some of the early interpreters took that to mean he walked with the angels, with the mm-hmm. sons of God, and that they took him physically up into heaven. We're familiar with the story of Elijah ascending to heaven at the time that this chariot appears in Kings. And so this was a similar story that Enoch ascended to heaven. And from there, he was given access to all of this heavenly knowledge. He was given a kind of cosmic map of the world and they took him on a tour and they showed him the places of judgment and the the places of blessing and they showed him this you know this tree of life and throne and he became an intermediator and he interceded for humanity when he was made aware of the coming flood so that in the Enoch stories Enoch is the one who by his petitioning by his tears by his righteous intercession prompts God to choose Noah to save the, uh, the race of humans and to save these other creatures and to save the planet. Uh, so we have a handful of apocalypses that were written in the third and second century BC that are visions and revelations attributed to Enoch. You talk about apocalypse as a form of resistance. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is really fascinating when, you know, again, when we think about apocalypse and uh, in our modern context and we relate it to these natural disasters and so on, we don't tend to think of it as making much of a political statement. When we look at the earliest examples of apocalyptic literature, they all have in common a particular setting and a particular posture in relation to imperial rule. So let me say more about that. In the 4th century BCE, the region of Judea and the region north of Judea that would include Galilee and so on came under Hellenistic rule. So folks are familiar with uh, Alexander the Great's conquest of the Persian Empire That's usually dated around 333 BCE. And folks may know the story that when he died fairly young, there was no clear successor to his vast empire. And what happened was his generals, uh, who are uh, in, in a lot of historical treatments referred to as the successors or diadochoi in Greek, his generals sort of carved up the kingdom And they ended up fighting with each other. Among those, the two that formed the largest empires, so new empires within what had previously been a much larger empire, are uh, his general Ptolemy 
in Northern Africa. So people will be familiar with the Ptolemaic mm -hmm. dynasty in Egypt and so on. So Northern Africa, the Ptolemies, and then in Syria and Mesopotamia, the Seleucid Empire. So his uh, general Seleucus establishes a dynasty there. And those two kingdoms fight with one another, war after war after war. And the territory that includes Judea is this very valuable land bridge right in the middle so that the Ptolemies and the Seleucids are constantly fighting with one another for control of that particular land and its resources. And they're fighting wars in Judea on that soil, trampling the land, devastating its livelihood, its fields, its buildings, the temple, and so on. And this context of imperial domination is one that, so in, in this book, I tried to really explore what, what would be the conditions of life in an empire such as this. And one of the things we, we find is that the ancient Hellenistic empires were really war machines. They fought constantly in order to generate money to pay the armies. And so they were constantly taking whatever their subject peoples and their conquered peoples had to give. And what we see in these apocalypses is they are taking a very concerted, deliberate stance against empire, against exploitation, domination, warfare. And so when we look at apocalypses as resistance literature, we want to pay attention to that historical context and see what it was that they were resisting. Yeah, so when we think specifically about Daniel as an example, you talked at the beginning about this unveiling, this idea that it, it kind of reveals something. So I assume that resistance is one theme. Are there other things that you feel like get unveiled throughout that, that piece of literature? So in the book of Daniel, scholars have pinpointed a kind of historical moment that appears it appears that this book is in its final version after you know what may have been a very long period of of stories being edited together visions being uh, written rewritten added to that this final version appears to be responding to a very particular historical moment within that broader setting of empire in which the Seleucid monarch Antiochus for Epiphanes decides uh, for reasons that seem in, you know, in the sources a bit unclear, but he decides to initiate a religious persecution within Judea. And what that means for the audience of Daniel and for the writers of Daniel is that they had to make a choice. If they chose to repudiate their faith and engage in religious practices that violated their faith, they would be able to save their lives and the lives of their families. If they chose to practice their faith, they would die. We have stories from the books First and Second Maccabees of mothers who would bring their children to circumcise them and the occupying soldiers would throw them off the city wall. And they chose still to circumcise their children. So one of the major themes we see in the book of Daniel is that choice. What choice will the audience make? What choice are the writers of this book making? 
And when we think of the apocalyptic literature generally, one of the things that is sometimes said about it is that it's, it, it looks like a kind of escapist literature. Mm, sure. It, it crafts these fantastic scenarios. Maybe that's a little detached from reality. And what I think we see is really the opposite. It's a literature of engagement that is aiming to persuade and embolden its audiences to step into the fray and make that hard choice. So when we think about those stories of Daniel in the lion's den or his friends uh, who refuse to bow to this statue, those stories aren't exactly apocalyptic in themselves, but they were an important template for the writers of those visions. So the visionaries, it looks like when we, when we sort of read between some of the lines in the visionary portion of Daniel, we see this phrase maskilim, or this, this Hebrew word maskilim, which means something like wise teachers. And it, it includes an echo of the suffering servant in Isaiah, and we see various um, sort of verbal anchors to that story, in, uh, especially in chapter 11 and chapter 12 of Daniel. And it looks like the authors of the book saw themselves in part living into the vocation of that suffering servant. And there's, there's a line in chapter 11 where it says, the people who know their God will stand strong, they will take action, and then it refers to them falling by sword and flame and captivity. So they saw their role as being teachers, revealers, people whose job it was to embolden and encourage and lead many to righteousness, is language that we see in chapter 12. But they, they felt that it was also their job to put their lives on the line to do that. That's really interesting. So in thinking about resistance, I know there's never a one-to-one correlation historically when we try to think about our own context, but are there ways in which this has changed the way that you think about empire or a way in which you think this helps us shed light on the way that we understand power and literature? Yeah. So when you look at Daniel's stories, before we get to the visions, you might notice that Daniel rises in the ranks of power and he is given some nice clothes and some nice jewelry to mark that off. And he is serving the king and he's been educated in the king's school in, in the Babylonian language and literature. And there seems to be a kind of negotiation in, say, in those first six chapters. How do you work in the system for change? How do you uh, stand up? to the powers that be while also exercising power. And then there's a shift with those visions. And Daniel's first response to those visions is to collapse to the ground and not be able to breathe and say, I didn't understand any of it. And that sense of of disorientation, aporia, comes, I think, in part from recognizing his own complicity in this system and structure of power and being shown what it is. So I think one of the first things we might take from that is an invitation to recognize how are we in it? How are we a part of the beast, the empire? And 
what do we need to see? What do we need to uh, to recognize and accept in order in order to stand where we're now being called to stand? Because that's how the angel then responds to Daniel is to say, now you need to get up on your feet. And the angel gives him the strength to stand, even though that's a hard thing for him to do. Uh, another thing that I would say is in our current context, it's very tempting, you know, it, so in Daniel 7, you have this sequence of four empires and, and it's very tempting now in this, in this age to, to continue to think that an empire manifests as this kind of uh, nation state with global interests. And, and to a point, I think that is still true. But we also see that global transnational corporations now uh, really occupy that position of empire in a way that we have not fully reckoned with. Who is really taking the resources of whom across the globe for whose benefit? And, and do we really see it for what it is? Do we recognize our complicity in that? What would it take to envision an alternative reality and enact it? Well, that's a great segue to what I had hoped to ask for the next question, which is for those who who preach from these texts or who who teach these texts, I'm thinking specifically of the congregational context now, are there a couple things that you say this is really helpful to keep in mind, whether that's about the way that we understand culture or the way that we understand the text or a bit of both? Yeah, so when... Um when I teach, uh, so I, I teach a course on preaching from the Old Testament in the past. Uh, we have done a unit on Daniel and apocalyptic literature. And one of the things I say is, you know, you, you hear a lot of uh, when you when you hear sermons on this sort of thing, you hear a lot of like how weird it is. And I tell them, don't don't preach about how weird it is. Preach weirdly. So if we, uh, if we can take some cues from the genre of the text, we could recognize the power of symbolism, the power of evocative imagery. We could recognize how the text is speaking into a site of trauma and choosing to put narrative form to that woundedness and offer a vision for the future. What would it mean to do that in the context where the preacher is, where the congregation is. I have also taught Daniel on, on death row in Raleigh's NC Central prison. And uh, the course that I've taught that in uh, was called Writing from Captivity. And the assignment for that unit in the course was for uh, the participants in the class to write a vision that would challenge a context that was familiar to them. I said, um, you know, it has to be a place that, that you know. It could be this place where you are right now. It could be somewhere, you know, you grew up or were at some point in your life. Speak out of that wisdom and knowledge that you have and use this, uh, you know, use this capacity for symbol and, uh, and capacity to envision an alternate reality as well as the ability to kind of lay out this present reality for what it is. And um, the work they did was so powerful, speaking into their own contexts. And so I think, you know, there, there, there is no context that is, that is devoid of that cloaking, covering over of reality. Mm -hmm. 
everywhere that we are, there is a kind of false narrative. I don't I don't mean to sound like paranoid, but but think about what is you know what is the job of a communications department, mm-hmm. <laughs> or a marketing mm-hmm. department. Um, how many commercials are we fed um, every day? And and the the reality that is fed to us. I think about um, what happened with the Russian the Russian use of social, this particular uh, cell's use of social media to try to increase divisions among the people of the United States through, you know, false information, right? So, so we, we would any of us benefit from that kind of hard look, pulling back the veil, trying to shine the light on truth. And if we recognize as preachers that that is, you know, that is what Christ came to do to reveal the truth, then that is our job as preachers. I'm stuck on this idea of kind of preaching weirdly. Um, can you, <laughs> I'd love for you to give an example, whether it's your own or something someone else give has done, yeah. um, where you've seen, seen somebody kind of take on this task in their preaching. Can you think of an example? So... In, in some sense, I think there can be an invitation in what I might call apocalyptic preaching to, you know, maybe leave a more expository mode of preaching for a different day mm-hmm. and, uh, and to create this imaginative world and to dare to use poetic imagery and symbolism, and also to consider preaching in someone else's voice. So one of the one of the features of apocalypse as a literary genre, when we're looking at the ancient Jewish apocalypses, very often the writer would write in the the authorial voice of someone from long ago. So when we talk about the Enochic literature, the writers identified with Enoch and they wrote in the voice of Enoch using first person narrative but Enoch you know lived thousands of years before we wouldn't have that text because of say the flood mm-hmm. I don't know okay so um, other examples you have apocalypses being attributed to Abraham or Jacob and so on and um in speaking in that voice of someone from the past, there is a kind of shedding of one's own personal authority and assuming this, this greater authority within the tradition, this, this, um, this authority of history, of narrative setting, and speaking out of that place. Would, would we dare in a sermon to, to speak in the voice of of a figure from the past, maybe a prophet, maybe someone else, and and unfold the vision that they saw. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds, and by Sherry Osteen. Our producer is Nee Otto Abrams. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.